Well, good morning, everyone. This is session nine. And Martin keeps asking me, haven't, you ever, haven't we figured out where we got the Bible yet? We've been in here for all these weeks, and we still haven't figured out where the Bible's come from. But we're getting there. We're getting there. And today we're going to find out. My today daughter we... said she, she knows where the Bible came from, Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? She read the book. We uh, are still obviously in the later modern period, 1780, which takes us right up to the present. We've been discussing uh, translations that are mainly uh, in the King James tradition. Pendle, and then the King James, the revised revision of 1881 in England, the British Bible, and then the American counterpart, the ASV of 1901, and then the RSV of 1946. And I was saying last time that we had a kind of a major development beginning in, say, 1900. And that's where this division, this major division in Christianity, there's some sheets back there if you want to get one to come in. This major division in Christianity uh, between fundamentalist and modernist began to affect Bible translation. So up until 1900, and this, this goes back earlier to... German rationalism, German Enlightenment, 1800s, you know, it goes back earlier. But, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, mostly, as I said, if you were Episcopalian, you believed the major doctrines of the Bible. If you were a Lutheran, you believed the major doctrines of the Bible. If you were a Presbyterian, if you were a Baptist, they had denominational differences but they basically believed in the authority of Scripture and so forth. Well, then, uh, these modern ideas crept in. Unbelief comes in. This is usually called the fundamentalist-modernist controversy. So uh, they're developed within the church, within the Christian, various Christian denominations. There rose up people. This, unfortunately, usually starts in the seminaries. I taught the seminary. But it usually starts in the seminaries rather than in the churches. Let's take the Southern Baptist Convention. When I was growing up, the Southern Baptist Convention was becoming more liberal as far as the seminaries were concerned. They were captured. All the five, the Southern Baptist Convention has five major seminaries. They were all captured by liberals, left-wingers. And this affects preachers who go out. And then this affects people who are in the churches, you know. So uh, that's what happened in the in the starting in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Thankfully, for the Southern Baptist Convention, it's one of the only times in history where denomination has kind of been brought back. Al Mohler came to Southern uh, Southwestern Seminary uh, in Texas. That was always fairly conservative, but Southern was left wing, Southeastern was left wing, New Orleans was left wing, Midwestern. They'd basically been captured back. Now, it didn't. It started because 
people in the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't know how I got on this topic, people, people in the Southern Baptist Convention and pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention, particularly uh, Paige Patterson, Adrian Rogers down in Memphis, they, 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 uh, they got concerned about this. And because of the denominational structure of the Southern Baptist Convention, they were able to capture it back. They, they, they sent delegates to the convention, and they got a conservative president, Adrian Rogers, back in the 70s, the first really conservative. So the churches, the average Southern Baptist church, you might have had a church that was pretty conservative, but they didn't really care what was going on in the denomination, and the denomination was run by left-wingers, liberals, and they were controlling, and so they were controlling the seminaries, appointing unbelieving professors and so forth. But they, uh, Adrian Rogers and others, Paige Patterson, they got control of the presidency, and the president appoints the board of trustees of the seminaries, and the seminaries and the trustees hire the professors. So they were able to just clean out all these guys, pretty much, and so uh, they turned that around. But what happened in this fundamentalist modernist controversy? These people call the fundamentalists. This is where the term comes from. And our church, whether we don't use the term fundamentals, we're fundamental in doctrine. We're in this tradition. And sometimes you hear about the five fundamentals, that there were five basic truths. It's hard to know that there was just five. They'll, they'll talk about the five fundamentals. But uh, there were a number of key doctrines, like the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutory atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the historical reality of miracles. So in these schools... Southern Baptist schools, Lutheran schools, Presbyterian schools, uh, Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary was founded in the 1800s as a very orthodox school. It, it's, it's a, it was an admirable thing. I, I read a history a while back, a two-volume history of Princeton. It's just thrilling to read it. But it was captured in the early 1900s by the liberals. They took it over. And so the conservatives left. They formed Westminster Theological Seminary, Machen, and so forth. But these people, unbelief comes in, and they start denying that the Bible is authoritative. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny his virgin birth. They deny that, that the death of Christ was a substitute for sin, that, he, that God, the wrath of God was poured out on him. They deny the resurrection. They deny miracles. They deny, so these are some of the basic truths that are not. And this caused a split in Christianity, especially in America, in the 1900s. Denominations split, all kinds of Presbyterian denominations split off into different groups. A Baptist split off into various groups and so forth. New groups were formed, uh, like here in the north. We had the Northern Baptist Convention broke off from that. The General Association of Regular Baptists broke off from that. The Conservative Baptists. So there's all kinds of splits that took place because... People were upset, Bible believers were upset about this unbelief. My point here, today we would say, we talk about evangelicals and liberals. So there are Christians, there are people who call themselves Christians, there are pastors preaching them this, while we're speaking right now, who call themselves Christians who don't believe that the Bible is for, fully authoritative. They don't really believe in the deity of Christ. You say, why bother? I don't know why they're bothered. What but do they preach? They preach good why works, love your neighbor. Help, you know, social reconciliation. They preach all kinds of social, cultural kinds of things. Good feeling stuff. Yeah. Okay. So today, we, we might call them evangelicals and liberals. Maybe that might be the term we use. Now, the reason I mention all this is because 
this came into Bible translation, this kind of uh, stuff, and it started with the RSV of 1946. Remember when I said the ASV of 1901, this was a very popular translation in the seminaries, in the schools. Uh, they used it at all kinds of conservative schools. But the RSV had liberals on the committee. They took over that. Now, it doesn't mean that the RSV is liberal at every point, that it just has all kinds of eras that you're going to lead you astray. But on certain key places, it, it tends to... Uh, it, 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 uh, particularly like on the virgin birth of Christ. Remember I talked about Isaiah 7.14. Instead of virgin, you have a young woman, things like that. So there's certain places... So the RSV is really a pretty good Bible. You know John Piper. John Piper used that Bible as his Bible, he says, for years and years and years. He read it, he loved it, and all that. He didn't like those places where the liberals had put in some crazy things, but still, it's not a terrible Bible. I'm trying to give that impression. But it does have those liberal tendencies. So we're going to see that as we go along here now. When we talk about Bible translation, we're going to have a couple of strains we're going to have translations by conservatives and translations that are not by people who are not so conservative. We'll have kind of two strains here. Now, before we get there, the first one on your sheet there is called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. I thought we'd mention this one. This is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. You know, the cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their own <coughs> translation of the Scripture called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, Right? Uh, it's uh, started in 1950. Notice 2013, they just produced a revision of that. So this is a translation prepared by the Watchtower Bible Tract Society, or we call them the Jehovah's Witnesses. As I say, the personal name of God, Yahweh, is translated Jehovah in the Old Testament without any basis introduced in the New Testament 237 times. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's one of their key doctrines, Remember? They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's an old heresy going back to a man by the name of Arius, Arianism, going back to the uh, third century, third, fourth centuries. Uh, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's only God the Father. The Son was just a created being. Jesus was just created. He's divine, but he's not equal with God. He's a created being. And the Holy Spirit is just a, the Spirit of God. It's not a person. The Holy Spirit's not a person at all. There's no third person of the Trinity. There's only there's no Trinity. <laughs> they deny the Trinity. But uh, they deny the whole personality of the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ and so forth. So their translation reflects that. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. See that small G-O-D, a God. So Jesus was a God. See, he was divine, but he wasn't equal with God. Now, that's a that's a that's really a mistranslation. Now, what's interesting about that is even the liberals, remember I said there are liberals, scholars. You can go to University of Michigan and take a class in religion, take a class in Christianity probably. You might be taught by someone who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ or anything like that. You know, you can be taught by anybody. But... Even the liberals don't accept this. Because this, the Greek text here is very clear. It says Jesus was God. It's, it's very clear on that. There can be no doubt about that. But what do the liberals do with it? John was wrong. 
John thought that, but he's not right. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, since they want to say we believe the Bible word for word, they have to change the Bible. So they change it to God, the word was a God. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, see, small G-O-D again, who is at the Father's right hand. John 10.3, Jesus answered him. We, the Jews answered him, We are stoning you not for a fine work, but for blasphemy. For although being a man, you make yourself a god. Well, they were, you know, the text should be, Jesus was making himself God. He was making himself equal with God. That's why they were stoning him. That's why the Jews were. But note, they're not always consistent, because here's John, here's Thomas. When Thomas is responding to Jesus after his resurrection, he says... Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. They messed up. They should have put a God in there if they were going to be consistent, you know, with their denying the deity of Jesus Christ. So I just mentioned this translation because the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Bible, the New World Translation that they will use if they were to come to your house. They would. This is the Bible. They would open up and try to show you. And if you tried to show them John 1, 1, they'd open their Bible and would say this. <laughs> he was a God, you know. Oh, we believe he's God. We just don't believe he's equal with the Father. He's a he's a created being. God created him. And he's above man. He's higher than you are, higher than we are. And God's elevated him. And he's to be worshipped. But he's just not worshipped like God the Father. Yes? Um, do they still... Um, are they still open to going to the King James Version Bible instead of their own? Because we were taught once that when you witness to the Jehovah Witnesses, that they will go to the King James Version um, if you talk to them. I, I don't know. They may. say, was God. Yeah. Do I don't know. I haven't. I've only talked to Jehovah's Witnesses one time, and it didn't last too long. When I pulled out my Greek New Testament, they took off. <laughs> so I don't know whether they would let you know when they, they allow you to use the King James or not. I don't know. They might. Um, so uh, that's the New World Translation another one I thought about mentioning I will mention the Amplified Bible before we had the spate of modern translations uh, and the Amplified Bible was a Bible that was often preachers would cite it I would hear preachers <coughs> cite it Bob Jones Sr. Uh, <coughs> cite this a lot uh, the Amplified Bible. It was produced, as I say here, by a committee of 12 editors working on behalf of a nonprofit group called the Lockman Foundation. Now, we'll mention the Lockman Foundation later on because they produced a Bible that we're going to talk about, the New American Standard Bible, the Lockman Foundation. Now, their purpose, they say, was to reveal together with the single word English equivalent to each key Hebrew and Greek word any other clarifying shades of meaning that may be can sealed by the traditional word-for-word method. So it's it's not an attempt to replace the King James or anything, but just to expand, to give you kind of a commentary and so forth. They do this by a system of square and brackets. As I say, it's partly commentary, partly translation. Now, this can be helpful sometimes, but it's it's a problem because sometimes people will uh, accept what's written here as authoritative. Here's an example of it. Seeing the crowds, this is Matthew 5, he went up to the mountain, and he, when he was seated, his disciples said to him, came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed 
happy, to be envied and spiritually prosperous. That is, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation. You know, it's a lot of words there, isn't it? You know, but the idea was to amplify, sort of give a commentary. And as I say, I used to hear years ago. I don't hear it anymore. Sometimes I hear a preacher. And back in the King James primary days, would sometimes quote the Amplified. Said, the Amplified says this, or the Amplified, you may have heard somebody say this. It's not very common now, although Joyce Meyer, uh, if you know her, uh, she uses this Bible. She preaches and teaches, and she has her own Joyce Meyer study Bible from the Amplified Bible, so it's still around. Now we come to the New English Bible, and here's where we see, again, that division between evangelicals and liberals about Bible translation. Now, the uh, in England, in Britain, and the United Kingdom, the translation they used there, you know, was the official translation was the revised version of 1881, a revision of the King James. There came a desire to produce a completely new translation. When I draw this line, original Greek and Hebrew, I'm not disparaging these Bibles. These Bibles are based on the original Greek and Hebrew, but they're just revisions of previous translations. It's, you know, they have similar language. Well, this is just a fresh, brand new, not dependent upon the King James tradition or the language or anything like that. This is called the New English Bible. This is done by the Protestant churches of the British Isles. So it's a desire to do something about the revised version of 1881, which... By 1961, the language was archaic, older, and so forth like that. It was produced, as I say here, by leading British scholars, C.H. Dodd, a very famous British. It took 24 years. They started in 1947, did a lot of work on that. As I say, it's been accused of having a liberal bias, like the RSV. Uh, Now, how do they get this? There's various ways. One of the things I didn't mention when I was going to talk about the RSV was that these Bibles, like the RSV, the New English Bibles, have what are called conjectural emendations. Conjectural emendations. What is a conjecture? A guess. Emendation is a change. So you'll see in these Bibles, like the RSV, the New English Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, they do not accept the text that has been transmitted to us. We've got thousands of manuscripts, but they say, no, we don't like that. We're conjecturing that the text really should be something else. We're guessing. And that's what we're going to put in the text. Well, you can see conservatives, we don't want any part of guessing about what the Bible says. We want to have manuscript support for what it says. So one of the things about these Bibles is they contain conjectural emendations, and the New English Bible has them. The RSV has them. They also have this problem with Isaiah 7.14. Now, let me talk about Isaiah 7.14 a minute. You know, Isaiah 7.14, a virgin, you know, will conceive. There is some scholarly debate about that word there. The Hebrew word is Alma. And there's debate about, you know, is it young woman or is it a virgin? Now, I'm convinced that it's virgin. And you'll find conservatives are convinced about that. But I'll, I'll admit, there's a little debate about that and, and some reason for it, but I don't have time to go into it. But you'll see conservative translations will translate as the virgin. But when we get to like Luke 127, the New Testament, Luke 127, 
there it says um, a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph talks about Mary Mary is a virgin and there's the Greek word parthenos and there is absolutely no doubt about that word that word means virgin it doesn't mean anything else there's no question there's no debate but the new English Bible puts young woman in there even though there is no scholarly debate about this there's no scholar no Greek scholar who would say Parthenos means anything but virgin they still put young woman <laughs> they put young woman in there uh, they actually they put girl in here in, in the, they, they said girl you know so, again, that's the problem with some of these Bibles is their little twist on some of these key doctrines like that. So it's not like if you had a friend who had the New English Bible and, they, and they're, you know, they're just an unsafe person and they're reading the New English Bible, I wouldn't say, hey, don't read that Bible, it's wicked and all that. You know, if they're reading the Bible, they, they can get saved by that Bible. You know, I wouldn't jump on that. It's, it's not the Bible I would give to people, but it's not that you couldn't be saved or anything like that out of the New English Bible or anything like that. It's not terrible, wicked, or anything. It's not like the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, that kind of thing. So, but we wouldn't recommend it generally for you to buy, you know, as your regular Bible, a New English Bible. Uh, the entire Bible was revised again in 1989. It's now called the Revised English Bible. So here's what it looks like in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I don't know if I should have chosen Romans 12, 1 and 2 because most of these are quite similar. Nothing out of the unusual particularly there. Let's talk about a couple of Catholic Bibles for a moment. The Jerusalem Bible and the New American Bible. Uh, as I say here, the Jerusalem Bible, 1966, is the first complete Catholic Bible translated in English from the original languages. Remember, we talked about the Catholic Bibles, um, the Douay Reims Bible here, 1609-1610, done at the time of the King James. You remember that? And then it was revised, Bishop Chowder, 1749, in Britain. And so, what I'm, what I'm talking here about the Jerusalem Bible I say it's the first complete Bible translated in English because remember the, 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 these translations are from the Latin Vulgate right? because the Latin Vulgate is the authoritative edition of the Bible in the Roman Catholic Church and you had to translate from the Latin Vulgate so the Douay Reims is translated from the Latin Vulgate the Chalmer Revision is the Latin Vulgate so the Jerusalem Bible is the first Bible produced in 66 because in 1943 the Pope permitted translation from the original languages. Until 1943, you couldn't translate from Greek or Hebrew. You had to translate from the Latin Vulgate if you were a translator. So the Jerusalem Bible is the first one. This was produced by 27 Roman Catholic scholars, including people like J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, the Lord of the Rings author. He worked on this translation. Um, it gets its name because it's based off... Uh, it, it comes from a Bible done in Jerusalem by some French scholars, the Jerusalem School of Archaeologists, who had got this name, Jerusalem Bibles. As I say, it contains some Catholic bias. <clears throat> the brothers of Jesus in Matthew twelve forty six 
are said to be not Mary's children, but near relations' cousins, perhaps. Do you know why they would say that? Why? Because they worship Mary. Huh? They worship Mary. Yeah. Yes. But what is it about Mary? Well, she's eternal. 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 Perpetual virginity. So Mary was a virgin, but she was remained a virgin her entire life. Perpetual virginity of Mary. So she can't have, you know, she can't have any children. So uh, the brothers of Jesus have got to be Joseph's children from a previous marriage or something. Or maybe cousins or something. You know, they, there's various answers to this. But it can't be... It can't be. This is the word for children. Normally, that's what it means. Children, you know, technized children. But you can't have Mary can't have children because she was a perpetual virgin. So it has some biases like that. As I say, it was revised in 1985. Now known as the New Jerusalem Bible, and that's what it looks like in Romans 12:1-2, but not particularly different from anything else. Now, in America, the most common Catholic Bible is the New American Bible. It's sort of an American counterpart to the Jerusalem Bible. So outside of America, if Catholics, English Catholics, they're generally going to use the Jerusalem Bible, generally. And in America, Catholics would generally use what's called the New American Bible. As I say, it had its beginning in the Confraternity New Testament. Remember, it all goes back to the Douay Reims, the Chaloner Revision, and then in 1941. In 1941, they said... Well, this is getting old. Let's make an update to the Douay Ring Chaloner Revision. And in 1941, they did. It was sponsored by the Committee of the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. The Committee of the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. So if you pick up one of these, it'll say, usually on the title page, Confraternity. It'll mention use that word there. So it was called the Confraternity New Testament, 1941. So it's based on the Vulgate, again, because in 1941 you couldn't translate from the original Greek. Well then, uh, in 1943, the Pope allowed translation from the original languages. And they were working on the Old Testament. See, they produced the New Testament first. They were working on the Old Testament. So they said, oh, that's not going to do. So they went back and retranslated the New Testament from the original Greek and the Old Testament from the Hebrew and gave it a new name. The New American Bible. They decided we need we need a new name here because we have translated from the original Bibles the New American Bible, 1970. As I say at number four here, the New Testament was revised in 1986. The Old Testament was revised in 2011. And the entire Bible is now known as the New American Bible Revised Edition. New American Bible Revised Edition would be the Bible that many Catholics or some Catholics uh, would buy for their Bible and read. Let's come then to the New American Standard Bible. Uh, 1963, the New Testament was done. Remember, we always have separate dates here because when they start one of these translations, the New Testament you know, is about one fourth the size of the Old Testament. So, if you if you if you get together and start translating, you can finish the New Testament first. So, when you finish that, the publisher publishes it. You know, uh, and then the Old Testament is published later with the New Testament as a complete Bible. So, 1963, 
1971 for the Old Testament. It was updated in 1995. Very minor revisions, but still 1990. So this is a revision of the ASB by 58 anonymous scholars. It's hard to find out who these people are. Sponsored by this Lachman Foundation. Remember the Lachman Foundation? It's the foundation out of California. They did the Amplified Bible, and then they did the New American Standard Bible. It's a very literal translation by conservative scholars. But it's a revision of the ASV of 1901. See that? Remember that the revised version in England, 1881, the Americans produced their own version, ASV of 1901. As I say, this became extremely popular among American scholars in seminaries. Remember I said at Southern Baptist Seminary, you had to have an ASV of 1901. At all Presbyterian schools, you had to have an ASV of 1901. That's all you could, that, that was it. Because that's it was the most accurate scholarly Bible of its time, the ASV of 1901. But they decided that it needed updating. The language was archaic, it was a little old, and so the New American Standard Bible was produced in 1963. So a lot of people who used the ASV of 1901, who were teaching back in the 50s and the early 60s, when that came out, they switched to the New American Standard Bible. When I went to school, you know, I was grew up on the King James Version and so forth, and then uh, as I switched over to another Bible, the first Bible I switched to was the New American Standard Bible of 1963. And if conservatives were not preaching out of the King James, the Bible they would normally preach out of would be the New American Standard Bible. That was the Bible that, if they're, you know, the, the switch over to modern versions has been rather rapid in the last 30 years. But the first Bible that conservatives switched to was the New American Standard Bible. John MacArthur. He went to Talbot Seminary, and when I went to seminary, the New American Standard was the Bible. Man, that was the that was it. And he went to Talbot New American Standard. So John MacArthur preached from the New American Standard Bible. But these Lachman people are wacky. They're out of their mind. Here's why I say, because here's John MacArthur, the most popular preacher in the world. He's coming out with a study Bible. Study Bible. You know the MacArthur Study Bible. He wants to put it, he wants to use the New American Standard Bible for his study Bible because that's what he's been preaching from. They will not allow him to do it. I guess these people don't like money. You know, I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, here's this guy's going to sell thousands and thousands of Bibles and they would get a royalty for this. No, you can't use it. So his Bible comes out in the New King James Version first. His first Mark Arthur study Bible is New King James Version. Now they've changed their mind since. You can buy a MacArthur Study Bible in the New American Standard, the New King James, the King James, the NIV. You can buy it in all of them now, but I don't know what they were thinking at the time. 1995, they updated this, modernized the language a little bit, got rid of some of the these and thous. Uh, that language remained, and they got rid of all those these and thous. So there's the New American Standard Bible in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Well, let's talk about... I'm going to mention something, uh, Bill. I actually have a Schofield New American Standard. Sure. First one I've ever seen. I got yeah. it in the pre-market. Yeah. No, they have Schofields in all these, yeah. Um, Kenneth Taylor. We're talking about the Living Bible paraphrase. The Living Bible. Uh, this is... Uh, 
1967 for the New Testament. The Old Testament was 1971. As I say, this is a free paraphrase of the ASV, not a new translation. It's a paraphrase of the ASV by Ken Taylor. Now, Ken Taylor was a guy who worked at uh, Moody Bible Institute. And most of the people who work there at Moody Bible Institute downtown Chicago, they don't live there in the city. They have to commute back and forth. And he took train between his office and Wheaton, Illinois, 45 minutes every day. And uh, when he was on that train, he got to thinking about a project because he had a lot of children. He had 10 children. And he was trying to teach them the Bible. And uh, he was having the trouble with the, they were having trouble understanding the King James. So he was making his own translations. He would, when he was traveling on that train, he would make his own translations. And he started with the epistles of Paul. And he would make these simplified translations and so forth. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, his kids loved them and people he kind of shared them with loved them and so forth. And uh, he finally produced these in 1962. Now, I've got it right here because he didn't go back to the original Greek and Hebrew. He didn't know Greek and Hebrew particularly well or anything. He took the ASV of 1901. Now, remember I said how popular that Bible was? Why didn't he use the New American Standard? Well, because he did it before the New American Standard came out in 63. So the ASV was the Bible at Moody Bible Institute. So that was the Bible, and he said, okay, I'm going to take and put that ASV into better English, simpler English, and so it can be understood, so his kids can understand it. He did it. So he went to Moody and said, listen, would you like to publish these things? And like idiots, they said, no. No, we're, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. So he started his own company, uh, Tyndall House, to publish this uh, the first was the translation of just the Paul's epistles called The Living Letters, 1962. And they published a lot of these things. I've gone into many bookstores, Salvation Armies, and you can find copies of Living Letters and so forth. Well, in 1963, Billy Graham read this. And he loved it. And so he orders 50,000 copies. That's a, lot of bo- that's a lot of copies, believe me, for books. 50,000 is, is quite a bit. So he, he did this, and this started him on. As I say there next, uh, number three, the Living Bible was published under a variety of titles. So he, he got the Living Bible, Living Letters, uh, the Living Bible, 1967 for the New Testament, the Old Testament, 71. So he completed the whole Bible. And uh, then this thing is just mushroom. People love this thing. They used to see it. I think the Gideons used to put it in hotels. You used to see sometimes. I've even seen it in different places. But... Uh, it's had types like Reach Out, The Way, uh, The Way Catholic Version, Soul Food, you know. As I say, it became very popular. In the 1970s, it accounted for about 46% of all Bible sales in the U.S. It's currently been translated into 100 languages. Uh, by 1997, they had sold 40 million copies. Now, this is, a, this is well-intended. Taylor was trying to do something good to help his children and so forth like that. He was trying to do something good. It was well intended. But as I say, it contains numerous incorrect translations and even profanity, unfortunately. 
know you're going to ask me about that profoundly, aren't you? <laughs> well, I don't know if I can say this. Just don't tell a pastor. Okay, don't tell <laughs> In 1 Samuel 20.30, I won't put it up there. In 1 Samuel 20.30, he has SOB in the text of the Bible. Well, it is, it is a rather harsh statement in the Old Testament, you know. Uh, you are the son of a wicked woman, you know, kind of is what the, te- the text is saying. But he actually put that in there, you know. Uh, other places showed his general theological bent. You know, generally, Acts 13, 48 is usually a very strong verse that Calvinistic people use to prove the sovereignty of God in salvation. Uh, he changed it to as many as wanted eternal life believe, but it's usually ordained, appointed, appointed, appointed. If you look at these other translations, as many as were elected or chosen for appointed life believe, but he pointed as many as wanted. So it had his sort of Arminian bias there and so forth. Um, still extremely popular. Now this is uh, this Bible when it got to be so popular, and because of some of these problems. They decided to redo this whole project. It's now called the New Living Translation. We'll talk about that a little later. But there it is. Um, The Good News Translation. Uh, As I say, uh, Good News Translation, New Testament, 1966... Uh, Old Testament 1976 Apocrypha 1979 this is a modern speech version of the Bible sponsored by the American Bible Society remember we had those modern speech versions which used colloquial English this is another one sponsored by the modern by the uh, uh, American Bible Society it was designed to be used for people who are learning English as a second language so it uses simple vocabulary and things like that Uh, it was released first as I say here, in 1966, under the title, Good News for the Modern Man. Good News for Modern Man, the New Testament in today's English version, TEV. So it was often called Good News for Modern Man, Good News for Modern Man. There used to be tons of copies of this stuff out. But it was very easy to read, very easy to understand, and a lot of Christians liked it because we want to understand the Bible, don't we? Yeah. So an easy-to-understand Bible is popular, you know. And so this was this was popular. Um, so it was called the Good News for Modern Man, the TEV. Uh, by 1976, 52 million copies of this had sold. It was very popular. I say a new edition was produced in 1976 called the Good News Bible. The Old Testament was added to it in 76, and they changed it from Good News for Modern Man to the Good News Bible. In 2001, they changed the title of it again to uh, the Good News Translation. Now again, the problem is, this is one of those that has that liberal bias. In Luke one twenty seven, remember where it talks about Joseph is engaged to a virgin. It doesn't say virgin. It says young woman again, which is really wrong. The, ver- the word is clearly virgin. But this is the American Bible Society, unfortunately is not in the hands of conservatives uh, these days, unfortunately. But there it is, the good news translation. Well, let's come to the Bible we use, the NIV. 
again, I put the line here just because it wasn't a revision of these previous translations. It was just a brand new translation, the NIV. <laughs> the New Testament, 1973. The Old Testament, 1978. It was revised in 1984 and then revised again in 2011. So on my own journey, I had the King James... Then I went to the New American Standard. And then about 1982, I switched over to the NIV. And when I came here in 1983 to teach at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, I, I used the NIV, and I've used it ever since as my main Bible since 1983. So the goal of this version was to produce a new translation that would do for our day what the King James did for that day. Uh, it's called International Version because it was it's designed to have international English. Remember, we talked about some of those British versions, the Revised Version of 1881, then we had the American Standard, because British English is different from American English. So the, the, the idea theory was, let's make a version that doesn't have any American idioms particularly, or British idioms particularly, so that we can use it all over the world and you know we'll have kind of international English. So... Why was this thing done? It was partly a evangelical conservative reaction against the RSV of 1946. So the, the RSV had been captured by the liberals. The, the ASV had been captured by the liberals. Uh, you had the New American Standard. At the same time that people were working on the New American Standard, people were working on the NIV. As I say, it had its beginning in 1965 when after several years of exploratory study by committees from the Christian Reformed Church over here in western Michigan and the National Association of Evangelicals, a group of 32 evangelical Bible scholars met at Palace Heights, Illinois. Is that Palace Heights? Palace Heights, Illinois, I guess. And, con and concurred in the need for a new translation of the Bible in contemporary English. Responsibility for making this translation was given over to a self-governing group of 15 uh, people called the Committee on Bible Translation. I guess I'll show that in a second here. Um, Committee on Bible Translation. It was composed of uh, 15, uh, originally 15 people from different Bible institutes, colleges, seminaries, uh, in 1968, the, the, the translation came under the sponsorship of the New York Bible Society. Now, there is the American Bible Society, but a lot of states have their own societies. They have their own Bible Society. I'm not sure if Michigan has one or not, but New York had a Bible Society. And these people were going to do this translation. You had these various Christian denominations. You had uh, various groups, the National Association of the Evangelicals. And they were looking for sponsorship, which means money. It's expensive to translate the Bible. Because even though the people who work on this often give their time free, they have to be transported to a, a, a location where they can translate. You know, somebody's got to pay maybe their meals or their, their hotel bills or, you know, if they're going to meet together. It takes money to print these things. To You know, it takes money. So there's a lot of money spent on one of these Bibles. I mean, the NIV took over a million dollars to produce. So the New York Bible Society said, we'll sponsor it. 
And they decided to change their name in 1998 to the International Bible Society. They moved to Colorado, and they became kind of an, a big society, International Bible Society, they called themselves, 1998. In 2009, they changed their name to Biblica. So you have the Committee on Bible Translation. They're the scholars who produce the translation are responsible for its updating. You have Biblica, which is the Bible Society, which holds the copyright and you have Zonarin, which has generally been the exclusive publisher. So Zonarin had to pay to, to publish this, you know, Bible, and they're the, they're the publisher of the NIV. As I say, it's a completely number three new translation by over a hundred evangelical scholars. So they had this committee on Bible translation of fifteen to oversee, but they don't translate the whole thing. They they give parts of it, just like the King James did. You have these committees, and you have a committee working on Genesis, and you have several people. They translate Genesis, and then they give it to another group, and they look at it, and they make changes or revisions, and they give it to another. So you have various committee approach here to to work on this and edit the translation. Um, as I say, it's one of the most carefully done Bible translations in history. It uses a paragraph format. We talked about that paragraph rather than verse by verse paragraph. It has this format. It tries to bridge the graph gap between a word-for-word translation and a meaning-for-meaning. There's various ways to translate. You can translate very literally word-for-word, or you can translate meaning-for-meaning. Next week we'll talk about that and what the difference is and so forth with that. So the committee each meets each year. Uh, They produced the NIV in 1973. They produced a revision in 1984 and a major revision in 2011. Uh, they say that about 95% of the text is the same as the 1973 uh, changes. Now, why, did they, why do they update these things? Why do they make these changes? They make changes for various reasons. They make changes because of English. For example, when most people hear the word alien, you know, we have in the Old Testament somebody is an alien, alien and a foreigner and all that. They think it's an extraterrestrial. So in Genesis 23, 4, I am a foreigner and a stranger. <coughs> so Abraham's not saying, I am a, you know, Jacob, I'm not, uh, I'm not an alien, I'm a foreigner and so forth. So you have changes in English, changes in scholarship. We learn new things occasionally. We now know that the word kataluma in Luke 2, 7 more likely means a guest room, not an inn where Jesus or Joseph gets this sort of guest room. Likewise, in Mark 1, 15, 27, we know that the two men crucified with Jesus are more correctly identified as rebels. The Greek word less taste is probably not robbers. They're more like rebels, revolutionaries. That's probably more what... So, that's, so sometimes you, you learn these things through study and they change that. Changes for clarity, Philippians 4, 13... Has often incorrectly been applied to anything in the Christian life. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can leap tall buildings with a single bound. No, that's not what it's saying when it says I can do everything. The context indicates that everything is limited to the ups and downs of life. Paul says, I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. That's the context. It's limited to the prosperous and adverse circumstances of life. So the text now reads, stressing the immediate context. I can do all this, all this I've just talked about. All this, this abounding and this abasing. You know, I can, I can, I know how to live when I have wealth. I know how to live when I'm poor. 
doesn't make any difference. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. So uh, that's the kind of changes. Here's the 84th and the 2011 in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And you can see there are some changes there. I don't know if you've noticed them much, but uh, because when this church started, you were using the 1984 edition. And uh, gradually, your pastor snuck it in on you. He gradually switched over to the 2011 because he realized that new people who come in and they're buying a Bible, they can't buy that 1984. You can't buy the 1984 anymore. 2011 is all you can buy. You can't buy the 84. So you can't buy one if you want one. You have to buy the 2011. So he realized that, <clears throat> that don't tell him I told you all this. But, Because <laughs> we used to talk about when, when are you going to make the switch, Ken? When are you going to switch this thing over? And you have to wait till enough people come in who are new people who are, can't buy the old Bible. They have to buy the 2011. Then you start preaching from the 2011. And so forth. You can. Oh, really? That's that's a used copy. Zondra's not publishing any. Nobody can nobody can legally publish it. Now, you, uh, it might be somebody's illegally doing it or or used one, but you can't. Zondra will not allow anybody to legally. You can't get it electronically, legally. Now, I have it on my computer because I had it before 2011. But you can't. You can't. You can't. Go out and get computer software and get it legally. Actually, anymore. all I can remember now is the Bible came from Amazon. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right, we've gone over time. Let's stop and we'll finish up next week. Thank you very much. <laughs>